The Daily Rios, episode 485, Alex Ross's Marvel Timeless Mural, a breakdown, part four. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter. Part four of the breakdown of the Marvel Timeless artwork created by Alex Ross, this time covering Storm, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Thor, Daredevil, Thing, Spider-Woman, Vision, and the Scarlet Witch. Basically, what I'm doing is I'm going through character by character, talking about their designs, talking about how Alex Ross has designed them, and then talking about uh, stories that I have read that immediately come to mind when I think of these individual characters. So we're going to start with Storm. We're going to start with her design. This look that Alex Ross has her in she has worn this look from Giant Size X-Men number 1 through Uncanny X-Men 172. In 173, that's when she would adopt her mohawk punk look. And it was all inspired by meeting the character of Yukio while the X-Men were over in Japan. So she has worn this look that you see on the mural from 1975 through to 1983. It's fairly traditional uh, when you think of Storm in those early uh, Chris Claremont days. She's got the two-piece. She's got the thigh-high boots, the tiara uh, that she even wore before she got a costume. She has that red brooch on her cape. Her cape is kind of kind of more like a poncho uh, she has her white hair she has all all white eyes from what i can see on the image and then she has those small little gold bracelets so this look is fairly consistent as i said uh, from when dave cockram first designed her all the way through to john byrne and paul smith with minor differences in how they might interpret her here and there um, the story behind storm's creation it's pretty well documented. Uh, she is a Dave Cockrum character. Um, he was someone who was always creating new characters. So he was doing Legion of Superheroes at the time and created a whole bunch of new characters, both heroes and villains. And I think out of all of them, only one character actually survived into the Legion of Superheroes, the character of Tyr. But along the way, he created, well, first of all, he created Nightcrawler, uh, Nightcrawler was meant to be within the Legion of Superheroes comic. But then he created all these other characters, and eventually he named them the Outsiders. And Storm is a mix of a bunch of these characters and the way they look and some of their powers, as well as uh, a character he created for Marvel called Black Cat. And that's that's Black Cat before Felicia Hardy. Um if you look at this Black Cat character, you can see that she has a lot of the base costuming for Storm. But then some of those other outsider characters, like uh, Tornado, uh, that's where Storm gets her powers from. And then some of the other designs made their way into this blend that eventually became Storm. All right, story-wise, I can think of scenes and moments with the character during all of my X-Men reading throughout, you know, a few decades. Um, but I really only went to uh, Life Death uh, number one and Life Death number two from Uncanny X-Men 
186 and 191. So these were both by Chris Claremont and Barry Windsor Smith. And uh, part one from Uncanny X-Men 186 was basically the aftermath of Storm losing her powers uh, an issue or two earlier after she was struck by a weapon that was designed by Forge. And it was a weapon that was meant for Rogue and it hit Storm uh, instead. And um, it has something to do with Storm and Forge and their relationship as well. And I think really for me, that first life-death story, not only did the art kind of hit me at the time, but also the story itself. I mean, a lot of those kind of stories that Claremont was doing in those days in the 80s, um, they all go a long way to explain why I always think of the X-Men as superhero soap opera. And that's certainly what Life Death certainly was. Uh, then you get part two from 198. Same creative team. Um, now Storm is in Africa, and she's trying to reconnect with her origins. And um, those two stories are really great. They're the first one is quite beautiful, um, both in art and story. And uh, that was something that she would deal with for about 40 issues or so, that she was powerless. So a pretty interesting time for Storm. So that would be my recommendation. Uh, it's not like I haven't read comics with Storm in them, but just like Colossus and Nightcrawler, she's a character that I think more about in terms of a team and not necessarily as an individual character. So as always, if you have uh, recommendations or stories that stand out for you, please let me know. All right, let's go to Spider-Man. I mean, come on. Steve Ditko design, uh, pretty classic. Um, Alex Ross is uh, not going too far out of the whole traditional thing. For me, as I was looking at it and studying the image, uh, I think the differences that I really noticed from other artists has to do with the way they do the webbing on the face. So it looks like there's a central circle right between his eyes, and then the webbing goes out um, from there in circles. Sometimes, even Steve Ditko will draw many circles um, blooming out from that center one. Uh, sometimes you'll get four or five. Sometimes you only get two or three. Alex Ross is going two or three, right? Uh, I looked at some Ramita Sr., Ramita Sr. was fairly consistent around two, three, four. Not too many more than that. Um, and I feel like uh, that's a way to kind of determine how an artist draws Spider-Man. Not only the emblem on his chest, um, um, but the web design is pretty important. Some of Ditko's... Uh, the way the horizontal lines met the vertical lines... The horizontal lines were really sharp. They angled sharply. So the curvature of those lines looked pretty pointy. Whereas Alex Ross and Ramita Sr. and some other artists, the horizontal lines are not as curved. So they don't give that kind of jagged look to it. Um, otherwise, uh, like I said, Alex Ross's design for this character, pretty standard. It even reminded me uh, a little bit of um, the Electric Company Spider-Man, but I know that's not true. Um, and Alex Ross has kind of like a silver glaze over the inside of the eyes, which is kind of interesting. Story-wise, I go right to Craven's Last Hunt from 1987 by Jam DiMatteis and Mike Zeck, as told in issues of Amazing Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, and Peter Parker, 
Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man. Um, I didn't read it at the time it was being published, but I did read it a few years after. And it's one that always comes to mind. I think it's it's just great. It's it's um, very moody and interesting. It makes Craven an interesting villain. And it obviously spawned a bunch of uh, sequels. So um, reading about that story, it was originally developed as a Wonder Man story, of all things. And also was developed to be a Batman story before it became a Spider-Man story. Now, in terms of um, Spider-Man as a series, I did read a bunch of um, issues from the 80s. In fact, my first issue off the stands was Amazing Spider-Man 252 with a black costume. I mean, I guess that was enough for me to pick it up. And I read Amazing Spider-Man at that time. I read Peter Parker, Spectacular, uh, Marvel Team-Up. I picked up the first issue of Web, Web of Spider-Man, but I didn't continue on from there. Uh, really, Black Suit Spider-Man post-Secret Wars is kind of like my Spider-Man, way before Venom. Um, but beyond that, the longest run on the character that I collected was from 2001 to 2007, the J.M. Straczynski run with John Romita Jr., Mike Diodato, and others. Uh, this is the one that um, JMS wanted to think about his origin in a different way. Uh, not so much that he was bitten accidentally, um, but the question was, you know, did did the spider want to bite him? Um, did he bite him because of the radioactivity? Did he, did he, I mean, there were all these questions about the origin that some people didn't like, but I really liked. I thought it was an interesting, different way to explore the origin. And then another thing he did with the villains is sort of show how they are all animal-based. And and it, ha it was this whole idea about totems. And, you know, you got the scorpion, and you got the lizard, and you got the rhino, and you got the vulture, you know. Um, so that was cool. The character of, of Ezekiel was cool. Um, along this run, uh, they explored a story where Aunt May found out that he was Spider-Man. Um, they did the 9-11 issue. Yeah, they did the Gwen Stacy stuff, which was uh, a bit of a mess. And eventually it all ended with One More Day, which uh, JMS was not happy about. But that run, I really enjoyed. In fact, I've always meant, I'm, I've been meaning to go back and reread it um, someday. Um, and then there's some other ones that I might think about, uh, like Torment, uh, Assassin, Nation Plot, The Gathering of the Five, I tend to always jump on Spider-Man when it's like an event, although I did not read um, the Clone Saga. So that's one I, <laughs> that's an event I, I just missed. All right, uh, let's go to Iron Man. Design-wise, now, the first time he was in a red and gold armor, that's in Tales of Suspense 48 in 1963 with art by Steve Ditko. Um, it has the yellow face mask. Uh, it has the, the red base on it. The trunks are designed more like uh, um, more like boxer briefs rather than, for lack of a better word, bikini briefs. Um, and also the face mask is pointy uh, right above the eyes. Like the yellow part above the eyes goes to a point rather than blending in with the head mask. Eventually, those points go away sometimes or sometime around Tales of Suspense 54 from 1964 with artwork by Don Heck. Um, 
And then around issues 73, 74, 75 from 1965, this is where you're starting to see the Iron Man as depicted by Alex Ross on his image. So Iron Man has that circle um, right in the middle of his chest. And then he has two smaller circlets um, on either side. Now, between 63 and 65, those two circlets almost were like, uh, they were in the nipple area. And then eventually they start to move up right next to the main circle. And then eventually they go all the way up to where Alex Ross has drawn him in the image. So 73 through 75, this is Gene Colan on the art, although he went by Adam Austin at the time because he was still working with DC. Uh, we would then get Iron Man number one, 1968, Archie Goodwin, Gene Colan, Johnny Craig. And then uh, we get all the way up to Iron Man 85 in 1976 with, uh, 1976, yeah, with Herb Trimp on the art. This is where we get the Mark IV armor. And um, it's not terribly different from what we've seen before, but um, the nose is gone. Um, it feels like this is the armor most people know from that time. And this is the one that Alex Ross is is showing on the artwork. Because you can just sort of see that he does have a nose. Or at least he has um, room under the face mask where the mask would go. But it's not like someone actually put an iron nose on his face. Like the character was drawn um, for, you know, in some issues in the 70s. Um, I like how on the Alex Ross drawing, you can see Tony Stark's eyes through the eye slits. That kind of feels like it puts it in a certain time, right? Again, if we're going to this whole timeless thing. And I also like that you can see in the mouth slit, there's like mesh. You can see like this um, gray mesh, uh, which is kind of cool. So yeah, this armor that he's seeing is clearly Mark IV, but there might even be little elements of Mark III as well. So I'm not super familiar with all of the Marks, but that that feels pretty um, straightforward. Story-wise, okay, Iron Man has had Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars. Honestly, I have not read a, a, a lengthy run of issues with the character. Maybe a year when Kurt Busiek was writing him in the 90s, but not even. So for me, the stories that stand out, these are kind of oddball, but Iron Man 150 from 1981, where he goes up against Doctor Doom in Camelot. Uh, two issues of Iron Age from 1998 by Kurt Busiek, Patrick Zercher, and Bob McLeod. Um, and then I have to say that I really, really love my copy of the Iron Manual from 1992, which is kind of like a, a, a handbook-style um, one-shot all about Iron Man's gadgetry. And it's by Elliot Brown, who did a lot of the tech stuff for the handbook series. Uh, and it's, uh, it's just great. For a reference nut like me, it's awesome. Okay, Thor. This is Jack Kirby, right? He's got the wings on his belt buckle, He's got the big circlets on his tunic. Uh, he's got the sharp point at the top of his helm. Um, I love uh, the creases in the leather tunic that Alex Ross gives him. It's awesome. But for me, it's really about the wings on either side of his helmet, right? They kind of go straight out, flat to the audience. 
And when you look at the way other artists draw for, say, like John Buscema or Walt Simonson, uh, the wings are a little bit closer to the head or they go straight up and back, right? But this, Alex Ross, I mean, they are... Don't stand next to Thor because if he turns his head, he's going to whack you with him, right? And that feels like a lot of the interpretation that Kirby had. Um, he's worn this look since uh, his first appearance in Journey into Mystery 83 in 1962. And outside of some random costumes here and there and some minor, you know, little interpretations by different artists, this look stayed with Thor all the way to 1994, uh, Thor 475, where he would then get an awful costume. And then eventually he would go shirtless uh, during the Mike Diodato run. And um, beyond that, I mean, he would bounce back and forth to his original costume and then other looks. But uh, that's a long time. That's a long time to be um, holding his original look, which is kind of cool. Now, where I think you could say that Alex Ross might pull from other artists um, is in how bulky his Thor looks. He's got a big face and a big neck. And that kind of makes me think of Walt Simonson. So, uh, okay, story-wise, um, my favorite Thor story from 2012, Jason Aaron, Isad Ribic, the God Butcher and God Bomb story from Marvel Now. Uh, I think it's like the first 11 or 12 issues of Thor from 2012. Just... It, it At the time, I remember talking about it, and I said, it's the closest thing that a comic came to how someone would, how I read uh, novels. Like, it felt like I was reading a novel in comic book form. Just the way it's told, and the different time jumps, and the dialogue is so good. So, so good. So, read that if you haven't. Uh, Walt Simonson on Thor, obviously, 337 through 382 from 1983 all the way through 1987. I mean, this is, you know, the big battle with Surtur and Beta, Beta Ray Bill, Frog Thor, Don Blake is gone. We got the Casket of Ancient Winters. It's where you get Malekith. I mean, it's just a phenomenal run. And I um, we did a bunch of footnotes on each issue back in the CGS days. I don't know if we ever finished it, but I'd have to go back and listen to those again because um, I also need to finish that run. So it might be fun to pick up on those. Uh, I also really enjoyed, uh, from 2007, the J. Michael Straczynski and Olivier Coipel run when Asgard was in Oklahoma. It wasn't very long, but it was beautifully drawn, and it was an interesting story because all the Asgardians were here on Earth and, and Thor had to, like, discover them. And I think eventually it led up to Siege, um, but that volume itself I, I enjoyed. I also liked Thor Disassembled from issues 80 through 85 of the second volume of Thor. This is in 2004, leading up to Avengers Disassembled. Uh, this is Michael Avon Oming and Andre DeVito. And I really want to read the Dan Jurgens run, that the beginning of that volume too, from 1998 with uh, John Romita Jr., it's when um, Marvel's heroes came back from from heroes Re from um, heroes reborn, uh, and it was called Heroes Return. It was the first true Thor number one issue. Um, but yeah, I want to read that, and and I am doing, you know, I have all these what I call great reads, right, where I go back and try to read multiple titles lead leading up to some kind of event or whatever. 
So I went back and started to read all of the Onslaught stuff for some reason, right? Well, really, it's because I wanted to read Thunderbolts again. And I thought, well, let me go back and read Onslaught because that's the whole reason why Thunderbolts came out. And then I can read Thunderbolts, and then, oh, you know, I could read the Heroes Reborn stuff again, see how bad they are. Uh, and then, oh, I could read some of the Heroes Returned, like the Thor run that I want to read. And then I thought, well, that'll lead me all the way up to Marvel Knights, which I would like to read some of that stuff again. So so I'm reading, like, this whole era of Marvel comics. Um, and eventually, maybe I will get to Thor by Dan Jurgens and John Romita Jr. Okay, Daredevil. So he's wearing his all-red suit from issue 7, way back 1965, as designed by Wally Wood, right down to the little cleft chin that Alex Ross uh, um, gives him. Um, he would wear this look all the way through to 1993 when he would get his armored suit look in Daredevil 321 by Scott McDaniel in the Fall from Great Grace storyline that some people didn't like. Um, for me, as I look at this, well, first off, Alex Ross gives the character kind of like a shiny quality, and it reminds me, well, for, you know, I don't know, is he wearing leather? Probably something to, to kind of protect him, but it feels like it's like the Ben Affleck costume from the Daredevil movie, and that's not a good, that, that's not a good impulse, <laughs> but as I look at what Alex Ross is doing, uh, I paid attention to the double D design on his chest, where the curve of each D, uh, the end of the curve on both ends, kind of sticks out from the stem. So they almost look like horns, right? They look like horns turned to the side. So I was like looking through a whole bunch of Google images and, and some Daredevil issues, and I want to say that that kind of specific double D design was uh, a Frank Miller thing from Daredevil 160 from 1979 uh, when he was just an artist at the time and then eventually, I mean, yeah, just an artist and then eventually he would take over as writer as well. But that's where I think you really see that design start to play out, which is kind of cool. Um also thinking about the horns, the placement of the horns on the head, they are, again, more front and forward as opposed to on the sides. Um, Alex Ross has them as uh, less like Batman, right? Batman's ears are at the side and up. These horns are like straight out from the upper forehead. That's, you know, you get different interpretations even from same artists. Sometimes they draw it differently. So I don't know if there's like a specific way that one artist drew it, uh, drew the horns, and then, you know, that's like where you can pinpoint it. But for me, the double D, D design is uh, evocative of that timeless quality from, from late 70s, as I talked about in the first part of this series of episodes. And um, that seems fairly consistent. Story-wise, um, you know, I was super lucky to jump into Born Again with that first issue when it hit the stands, issue 227, late 1985, going into 1986, with that word apocalypse on the cover. Um, I had collected a bunch of issues prior to that, issues 207 through 213, but then for some reason dropped off, and like I said, I just managed to pick it up, which is pretty awesome. By the way, if you don't know, there is a Born Again tie-in issue 
in Amazing Spider-Man 277. There's a scene between Peter Parker and Matt Murdock, um, and it's Matt Murdock in the Flophouse, uh, you know, uh, the beat-up Matt Murdock talking about Kingpin. So if you are someone who loves Born Again and you don't have that Amazing Spider-Man issue, pick that up. Now, from the earlier issues that I did collect, um, I have to give a shout-out to 208 from 1984, this is the Deadliest Night of My Life story by Harlan Ellison, Arthur Byron Cover, and David Mazzucchelli. It's a one-shot story, beautifully drawn, creepy, um, about this little girl that uh, Daredevil follows into this mansion of horrors um, that is full of booby traps. And then the little girl turns out to be a, a robot that explodes, and there's a bunch of other ones. Um, it's a good story, though. It's a really good story. I like that a lot. Some of the other Daredevil, Daredevil stories. Um, Daredevil, Man Without Fear, the origin miniseries by Miller and Romita Jr. from 1993. Uh, Kevin Smith and Quesada on Marvel Knight's Guardian Devil story from Daredevil uh, 1 through number 8, number 9. That's from 1998. Uh, as I said, I, I liked the Fall from Grace story, Armor and All. This is from uh, issues 319 through 325 in 1993. And, you know, I was all in on Shadowland from 2010 uh, by Andy Diggle. I thought the premise was sound. I thought it made sense. Daredevil wanting to take over Hell's Kitchen and the Hand and uh, kind of losing himself in, in his heroic battle. And he becomes uh, more or less a, a villain, you know. And I was for it. And, eh. It just didn't go anywhere, so. Um, but an inter interesting premise, nonetheless. All right, we go to The Thing, design-wise. So uh, I kind of pinpointed on the way Alex Ross drew the brow shape above the eyes for The Thing. It's not straight across. It's not blended into the forehead. It really looks like almost like part of a crown that is just uh, put right there, on top of his face. So I kind of see Kirby, but I also see Perez, and I also could see Ron Wilson, um, maybe early burn, because later burn, he blended the brow into the forehead uh, so that the eyes were kind of hidden underneath. But the, the way that Alex Ross is drawing the thing reminds me of 70s thing especially like the Marvel two-in-one days. So, and again, makes sense with the whole timeless thing. Story-wise, uh, I'm going to talk more about Fantastic Four as a whole next episode when I get to Reed Richards and um, Invisible Girl. and uh, um, But we'll save that for next, next episode. When it comes to Thing, just by himself, I have to uh, give a shout-out to This Man, This Monster, which I just read in like the last four or five years, um, from Fantastic Four, 51, from 1966, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, first appearance of the Negative Zone. Not what I expected at all, but really a great, I mean, I don't have to, I don't have to um, prove that it's a classic. It's a classic. And when, after I was done reading it, I thought, yeah, that's why it's a classic. So that has to be on the list. Um, also, the Pro Project Pegasus Saga from Marvel 2 and 1, 53 through 58 from 1979, Mark Grunewald, John Byrne, George Perez, featuring Quasar, Deathlock, Giant Man, Thundra, Aquarian. Uh, probably why I like 
Project Pegasus so much. Just a fun story. I'm one of those readers that I think I like Marvel 2-in-1 more than I like Marvel Team-Up, which might be blasphemous, but whatever. Um, and then I, I used to read the Thing series from the 80s, uh, all the way through to when he joined the Unlimited Class Wrestling Federation. Remember that? Yeah, that was an interesting time. I think the character was the power broker, and he was giving all these characters powers, and they used to fight in a wrestling match. So, yeah, very strange. Okay, now we go to Spider-Woman, and she looks like she's straight off of the Joe Sinnott cover to Spider-Woman number one from 1978. Uh, Alex Ross has given her all the classic stuff, the, the big poofy hair, the... the um, wings under her armpits that you could almost by looking at the image could can hear how they might sound as she moves uh that's that's a pretty classic look she first appeared in marvel spotlight 32 from 1977 created by archie good goodwin and marie severin uh, but she was called arachne in that story and then would go on to appear in marvel 2 and 1 issues 30 through 33 but in all those appearances, she had a full head mask. So it's not until Spider-Man number one that you see her hair. And that's what Alex Ross is showing here. Story-wise, when I was reading Marvel Comics in the 80s, there was no Spider-Woman. There was no Jessica Drew. She had been depowered by the end of her series, um, or at least in a, in a, uh, a story that was in Avengers. Um where she uh, was in a spirit world and then came back to her body, but she was powerless. So so I don't even think Jessica Drew showed up much at all anywhere um, when I was reading Marvel Comics. So I'd, I'd have to really think about that. And in fact, the only Spider-Woman that was around was Julia Carpenter from Secret Wars. and But she wore that black and white costume which eventually was kind of the reason why Peter Parker um, got into his black costume. So so I don't know Jessica Drew as Spider-Woman, not until Secret Invasion in 2008, when Bendis brought her back and did what he did with her um, in the Spider, in the Secret Invasion event. Um, but as a character, I liked her. I thought she was, it was good that they brought her back. And um, when you read about um, Bendis and Spider-Woman and his love for the character. When he did the Alias series from 2001, Jessica Drew was supposed to be the star of that series, but eventually they decided against that, and he, he created a new character, and she became Jessica Jones. So that's how we got Jessica Jones. So um, that's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. Obviously, they have both the same name, right? All right, last up, Vision and the Scarlet Witch. Design-wise for the Vision, straight out of Avengers 57, 1968 by John Buscema. Uh, it, fairly classic look. It didn't deviate for a long time, and that's what you're getting here from Alex, Ro Alex Ross. With the Scarlet Witch, uh, it takes her a little bit before she gets the classic look that Alex Ross is using here. So she first appeared X-Men number 4 from 1964 by Jack Kirby, uh, where she's green on the cover but not inside. Inside, she's scarlet, but on the cover, she's green, which is weird. When you see her first appearances, she has a head mask, she has a headdress, but it goes all the way around her head, even under her chin. And she wears that look for a while until 1967 Avengers 36, 
art by Don Heck, where the circle mask is gone, but she's still not quite what she looks like here by Alex Ross. Um, Don Heck uh, gives her gloves that go all the way up to her armpits, and she's more of a magenta color than she is um, scarlet. So she's with the Avengers for a while, she loses her powers, and then she comes back, Avengers 75, artwork by John Buscema, this is 1970, and here is where we get the headgear that looks like what Alex Ross is doing, you get the shorter gloves, her, her cape, instead of being attached at the shoulders, is around along the front of the neck, almost looks like a scarf, just like Alex Ross draws her, and she's in a reddish color, finally. Um, and then eventually she rejoins the team in Avengers 76. So, so that's the look that Alex Ross is channeling here. Story-wise, all right, I have a confession. I have not finished the Vision series by Tom King. Beyond that, um, I've read Scarlet Witch and I've read Vision in Avengers books. But just like with the X-Men, um, they always feel like teen characters to me, you know? So I don't have a lot. I don't have anything, actually. <laughs> I mean, they both went bad, both in stories by John Byrne. I've never read those. Um, there's Avengers Disassembled and uh, House of M and, and The Vision showed up in Young Avengers. But again, either I haven't read them or they aren't stories that stand out in the way that others have when um, in previous episodes or in this episode. So really, it's kind of anticlimactic <laughs> the way I'm going to end this episode. So because that's it. That's it for the uh, characters for this part. All right, next episode, the final episode, I get to look at uh, Shang-Chi, Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Girl, and Human Torch, Silver Surfer, She-Hulk, Namor, and Ghost Rider. As always, send me an email, peter at thedailyrios.com, or visit the website, thedailyrios.com, or go follow my Instagram, thedailyrios. Here's an update for Operation Laptop Rebuild. I am now at 42%. 42%. Super generous. People are surprising me left and right. And I'm hearing from people who I don't think I've heard from before, which is cool. People who have been saying they've been listening um, not only to the Daily Rios, but to CGS all the way back in, in the early years. So that's amazing. That is so cool. And um, just uh, I continue to be surprised. I continually want to thank everybody. I got a really cool fun pack from Mr. Phil um, in the mail, which was awesome. And uh, I'm going to do an episode about all of this um, once I wrap up um, the fundraiser or I get close to it. Um, but I'm hoping for more. Um, so please, if you can, I'm only asking for the price of a comic, $3.99, but if you can do more than that, which most people have, which is awesome, great. And if all you can do is retweet one of my tweets, that is awesome as well, because that'll help get the word out. All right, this has been the Daily Rios episode 485 for Wednesday, August 12th. Talk to you soon. <laughs>